Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. So many of us want to know if there is life after death, if there is another side, if there is a heaven, if there is a higher place that we go to when we pass. And today's guest has a really interesting perspective on that because today's guest is Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a neurosurgeon with 25 years experience. And you can he considered himself agnostic or atheist before the near-death experience that he had. But after the fact, he went through this coma where he was legally dead almost and or about on death's door. And what happened to him, he came back and defied all of the medical odds that were out there and was able to recount his near-death experience. And coming from his perspective, a neurosurgeon who really was not spiritual is really remarkable. He's written multiple books over the past 15 years and is one of the leading voices in near-death experiences. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Eben Alexander. How are you doing, Eben? I'm doing great, Alex. So thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for for uh, for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you. I have been enjoying your new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and uh, I I've I've been fascinated by your work for a little while now. And um, I wanted to know before we get into your near death experiences and 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 your work, what was your life like prior to your near death experience? Well, you know, I was living a very good life. I mean, I was. uh, a neurosurgeon. I'd followed in my father's footsteps uh, in pursuing that field. Uh, I spent more than 15 years teaching at Harvard Medical School as an associate professor. Uh, I also taught uh, at the uh, University of Virginia and University of Massachusetts, uh, all in neurosurgery. Uh, so I was I was leading a very good life. You know, I had a wife and, and two wonderful sons. Um, and the day before I went to coma, I had no clue what was about to unfold in my life. But uh, you know, I really have no complaints. I was you know a conventional. Uh, kind of reductive materialist neuroscientist, uh, as much as I wanted to believe much of what I'd heard growing up in a Methodist church. And my father, although he was scientific, he was the head of a neurosurgical training program. He was also very spiritual and believed in the power of prayer. And he used that regularly in his work. But, you know, like so many of the who grew up in the 60s and 70s, I was certain that science is the pathway to truth. And I made the mistake of thinking that an old disproven Newtonian deterministic version of materialist science was a pathway to truth. And that is false. There is a much richer quantum informed version of understanding consciousness. And I've spent the last 13 years since my coma working with other scientists around the world pursuing that. So it's uh, it's an extraordinary gift. But yeah, the day before my coma, I had no inkling what was about to uh, to uh, Unfold. come across my bow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So would you consider yourself atheist prior? And like really well, not as well, much? I think the best way to put it is I, I struggled a lot with my faith, you know, 
the 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 long career in neurosurgery left me really uh, confused about how conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. I really just couldn't see how that could happen. And of course, as I explained in my book, Proof of Heaven, which was the first book I wrote about all of this, um, you know, I was um, sent into a dark night of the soul uh, for eight years before my coma. That has to do with the fact that I'm adopted. That's a huge part of the backstory and is very relevant to major discussions of my NDE and its aftermath and understanding. Uh, but turns out, as I describe in Proof of Heaven, in February of 2000, when I was, um, you know, I had long ago, decades earlier, accepted that my birth mother was not looking for me. So I quit writing letters to the children's home. But then it was a school project for my older son, Evan IV. He was in sixth grade uh, in Dover, Massachusetts. And um, he had some family genealogy pro project. And he said, Dad, we just have to have more information from your birth family. So I wrote another letter to the children's home. And this is where I got the shocker. And I explained it all in the book in detail. But in a two-minute phone call, I got a call from a social worker that shocked me right to the core. She basically said, your birth parents got married. I never, ever had remotely suspected that. I'd always heard they kind of went their separate ways and right. thought I was just looking for my birth mother, thought my birth father was totally out of the picture. But they got married. And not only that, they'd had three children but that the youngest uh, sister had passed over two years earlier. That would have been in 1998. Uh, and, and according to the social worker, um, they were still grieving her loss, so it was not a good time for me to come back in their lives. Turns out that really has nothing to do with the actual communications. But given the uh, kind of obscuration of all this with North Carolina laws trying very hard to prevent reunions of adoptees with their birth parents, uh, it was a real uphill battle. And that perceived rejection from my birth mother is what sent me into that dark night of the soul. I stopped saying prayers with my kid, two boys at night. I stopped uh, taking them to church. I basically uh, became very agnostic, I would say. Uh, not totally atheistic, but just like, how can it be? And, and that just sent me into dark night of the soul. Turns out, again, a huge part of the story explained in the book uh, is that I did meet my birth family about a year before my coma. And that was ab absolutely crucial for the unfolding of all the events of the coma journey and the understanding of the aftermath. But uh, needless to say, my coma journey showed me very clearly how consciousness can survive uh, the death of the brain and body. And not only that, it showed me a, a very rich realm of kind of interconnection and uh, you know, one that uh, fully, in, in some ways, kind of violated a lot of my religious preconceptions, even though I'd kind of abandoned them uh, in the year 2000 with that rejection. You know, I'd never entertained thoughts of things like reincarnation, but my NDE showed me very clearly that our souls come back again and again, that it would be foolish to think that all that soul work could be accomplished in one incarnation. Uh, and of course, then I had to do all the heavy duty homework into the scientific evidence for reincarnation to start to realize the bigger picture. But uh, what emerges from all of this is just a much grander vision of the nature of reality that is perfectly aligned with modern science and a very refreshing uh, kind of viewpoint to the world at large. But it also indicates we have a responsibility for our choices. And, you know, we're bound together through this force of love that so many NDEers have discovered and yet you don't necessarily see that the way we act in these bodies 
in this lifetime, these lifetimes. So that's where we all need to learn some deep lessons about this, that with the tip of the spear of those lessons being near-death experiences and things like life reviews. Now, so let's discuss a little bit about your near-death experience. What exactly happened when you, when you fell into a coma? The most important thing to point out is there's one anomaly in, in my case that's atypical for NDEs, and that is that I was amnesic. I had no memory whatsoever for Eben Alexander's life. I had no words, no language, none of those religious uh, preconceptions of Eben Alexander, none of the scientific knowledge of Eben Alexander. Everything was wiped clean. It was an empty slate. Uh, and it took me months to really understand why that would be. I mean, I came to realize, of course, NDEs are always tailored for the individual to help answer their deep and profound soul questions. And that's why I think mine took the role that it did, but it involved that necessity of the amnesia. Uh, now, very briefly, I'll tell you that the experience that I describe in great detail in many talks that are out there on the internet, that also in the book Proof of Heaven and the follow-up books Map of Heaven and Living in a Mind for Universe, but the journey itself in this amnesic state began in the earthworm's eye view, very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm that seemed to go on for ages. But I was rescued from that by a slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody that ushered up like a wormhole into this brilliant ultra-real gateway valley. Now, the gateway valley had many earth-like features. Uh, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There was this lush, incredible kind of meadow surrounded by forests down below us, uh, lush plant life, um, buds, blossoms, flowers, all of this very richly dynamic alive, no sign of any death or decay. I remember thousands of beings down in this meadow, lots of joy and merriment and dancing and festivities. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show all being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic choirs that were emanating these chants, anthems, hymns that would just thunder through my awareness. Uh, another crucial uh, feature of that stage of the journey was that I wasn't alone. There was a beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing with me. And those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize at the very end of the book, four months after awakening from coma, I actually discovered the identity of that beautiful uh, woman. But at the time, I didn't know who she was, but her message to me, and she, it was delivered telepathically in this rich kind of emotional identity of communication. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are cared for. And I think that was kind of the ultimate message I was to bring back to this world, that and everything else about, you know, being able to have this when my brain was documented to have such destruction that I couldn't, that brain could not have uh, made any kind of dream or hallucination. And that's all confirmed in a case report on my medical records that came out 10 years after my coma by three physicians not involved in my care. That case report is in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, September 2018. But they make it very, very clear that my brain was, was far too damaged from the, all the data, neurologic data of my illness to have come up with anything uh, in terms of phenomenal experience, much less the most robust, meaningful, detailed, ultra-real experience I've ever been through in my life. Now, it turns out that was a stepping stone, as we say, gateway valley, uh, to higher and higher levels. And I remember seeing all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, then all of that spiritual realm, including a different causal ordering that I call deep time. Very important to understand, Earth time is only kind of a shared consensus 
time flow, but that ultimately in the spiritual realm, there's a more kind of fundamental marker of progression of soul growth and evolution of consciousness that occurs in deep time. But in the next phase of my journey, all of that collapsed down too. Uh, and through another wormhole that was engendered by the music of the angelic choirs, I ascended into the core realm. The core was infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with a divine uh, healing love of that creator God source. I mean, that's what indie ears, prophets, and mystics have encountered uh, for thousands of years across all belief systems in these journeys uh, that show us there's more to the universe than just the physical world. Uh, and that's exactly what I bathed in. I mean, that beautiful ocean of love is something that any indie ear comes back and realizing there's nothing to fear about death. It's really kind of that returning to source and that beautiful oneness. And anyway, I cycled through these regions multiple times. I could use the memory of the music itself to conjure up these various portals between levels. Uh, but I was always told in the core, we'll teach you many things, but you'll be going back. You're not here to stay. Uh, and there came a time when that was true. And I tried to remember the musical notes, the melody, to conjure up that light portal that took me from the earth where my view up into the gateway valley. And it wouldn't happen. Uh, and that was towards the very end of the journey. That's when I saw thousands of beings going off into the distance, heads bowed, some holding candles, this murmuring energy coming from them. And the surprise of that was I was now back in this murkiest early realm, the earth where my view. And yet I still felt the incredible sense of love and connection and spiritual home of all those beings around me. And my writings, when I wrote it up weeks later, I said, that was the power of prayer. That was, that was what I was sensing from all those beings. And it was helping to guide me back to this world. There were six faces I saw at the very end, and they're important because they were veridical time anchors. Uh, there were a people, family and friends who were in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. And for all the elaborate reasons, I go into detail in the book to explain it. But they showed me that the vast majority of the coma journey, which seemed to go on for months or years, I mean, an extraordinary journey, even though it happened in seven Earth days of my time in coma. Um, but uh, that uh, return, uh, finally, uh, coming back to this world was the sixth face that I saw as a 10 year old boy. And it turns out it was my son bond. I did not recognize him. My amnesia was still absolutely, uh, preponderant in this, in this journey, but his pleading with me, he'd been outside the room, uh, where the doctors held, uh, the family meeting on day seven of coma, where I had not been making any progress, uh, 10, they estimated 10% chance of survival early in the week, 2% at the end of the week no chance of recovery. And that's why they recommended stopping the antibiotics. Bond overheard that conversation, came running down the hallway, realizing now it was much worse than what he'd been told. And he pulled open my eyelids, one eye looking over there, one down there, neither pupil working. Anybody in medicine knows that's a horrible picture. I promise you, I did not see him with my eyes, hear him with my ears, but his pleading with me, daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. I didn't understand the words, but the emotional engagement and the pleading is what got through. And that is what impelled me to come back to this world, even though I had no idea what I was coming back to. Uh, when I did, opening my eyes in that ICU room, my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside, I had no idea who these beings were. The amnesia was still absolutely uh, active, but the amnesia resolved quickly. Words and language came back over hours and days, childhood memory over days and weeks. All my semantic knowledge, physics, cosmology, neuroscience over two months. Um, and in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into a lot of detail about the importance of that part of the discussion uh, in that 
uh, many neurosurgeons are finally getting to a point of realizing, you know, that long-term memories do not seem to be stored in the brain at all. Out of the million plus uh, craniotomies we've done, brain resections over the last century, there's never been a case of long-term uh, memories being removed with any part of the brain being removed. Uh, it's a very important point, but uh, uh, we explain it uh, in Living in a Mindful Universe, especially in that appendix on memory in the brain. Um, it's kind of the last nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience that memory is not stored there. But of course, we also realize now that the brain serves as a filter. It's not the producer of consciousness, but it allows primordial consciousness uh, in. And so that's where the whole discussion from a scientific perspective gets very, very interesting. Uh, but uh, I've spent the 13 years since my coma trying to make sense of this journey in a way uh, that uh, helps me explain it. And that has also involved an intense program of meditation, an hour to a day using sacred acoustics, binaural beat brainwave entrainment, or very deep meditation to help develop my relationship with much of what I first discovered within my NDE. Now, with your meditations, because I'm a, I'm a heavy meditator, do I do an hour or two a day as well? I always find that when I go into my meditations, it is a, it's almost like a window into connecting with, with the, the, for lack of a better term, the other side, connecting with source. Right. In a way, we do it when we go to sleep and we kind of, you know, when we wake up, we're back into this reality. Uh, but med so with your meditations are, I mean, I'm assuming it's nowhere near as viv vivid as it was during your NED, but is there a, a way in your meditations, what do you feel as far as connection to source, connection to your higher self and so on? Well, it, it really, it doesn't happen every time. In fact, I have to really work at it. Uh, and every few weeks or month or so, I'll have a really deep dive in, in uh, kind of consecutive meditations uh, that will help me connect with that, not only to remember uh, like some of the events of the NDE, but to develop this relationship. And I, I share a lot of that specifically in the book, Living in a Mind for Universe, um, especially around my adoptive father, because if I had scripted this whole thing, he had passed over four years before my coma. And if I had scripted it, he would have been there front and center. And yet he was not. Uh, but I did uh, find him in a very beautiful way in deep meditation about two, two and a half years or so after my coma. Uh, and I explained that whole encounter in uh, Living in a Mindful Universe. But it was an extraordinary uh, experience uh, that just shocked me no end. And yet it then made perfect sense uh, in essence, his sense of humor came through in a beautiful way. And he was telling me that he could not be apparent to me during my NDE, because then if he'd been the guardian angel, I would have been more tempted to, in spite of a one in 10 million diagnosis of E. coli meningitis in an adult, in spite of a one in a billion recovery, if he had been there, I might've been more tempted to dismiss it all as you only see who you want to see on the way out. And that's why I actually had to have someone that I didn't know, who was very important to me in my life in a bigger sense, you know, going back to that birth family, having left the world two years before I even knew of her existence. And, and all of that was an important part of it. But I've used meditation to develop those kind of relationships. Now, you're exactly right, though, the ultra reality that to me was so shocking about the, the gateway valley and, and, the, and the core um, is something, for one thing, I found 
most NDEers describe that same kind of ultra reality, too real to be real uh, kind of sense. And I had no idea of that because I'd never read the NDE literature before my coma. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And my older son, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time, was smart enough to advise me to write down everything I could remember about my coma before I read anyone else's NDE account. And that was very good advice. And then I had a pristine kind of 20,000 word uh, document explaining what, uh, you know, I remembered and what I'd been through. Um, And uh, I think that that was really uh, a, a very important part of this. But then to discover that ultra reality is so commonly described and I knew exactly what that was all about uh, because of my deep coma experience. Uh, occasionally, I get a, a glimpse of that uh, in, in some of the visions I have in deep meditation, uh, where I, I get back into that kind of stage setting where the universe presents me with this com- kind of elaborate and complete uh, scene of reality that I may recognize as part of this life or potentially part of this life. But sometimes I just have to extrapolate that it might be a different part of my soul journey. I don't want to necessarily say a past life memory because I have yet to be uh, fully convinced of the veracity of any sense of past life memories I've had in meditation uh, because they're so difficult to prove, you know, to go back and get objective data to prove that that person actually existed. Uh, To me, that's a big challenge and it's something I'm always looking for and something I haven't necessarily found, but I've certainly found uh, some beautiful uh, uh, kind of settings within deep meditation that help me come to answers about issues in my life now. Uh, And they can seem very real uh, when they're, when I'm going through them. In fact, they can seem like a true reality being lived in the moment. Uh, but the, the real essence here is, is, you know, coming up with the right ways to meditate. So the, for me, the very first and obvious thing is you need to turn off a little monkey mind voice in your head. You know, I, I, some people identify with a voice in their head. They think that's who they are. They think that's their consciousness. I think Rene Descartes even made that kind of mistake when he said cogito ergo sum. He might have been thinking that because those thoughts were happening, that made him alive and aware and existent. Whereas, in fact, it was his ability to observe those thoughts that actually meant he existed. And that's a, a, an important distinction, something we often make in our, in our meditation workshops. But, uh, you know, once people understand that there's a far grander kind of conscious awareness lurking uh, within mind, once you can shut up that little monkey mind annoying roommate, as Michael Singer calls that voice in the head, uh, then there's a lot of room for some rich growth. And that's where I've learned to really ride the sacred acoustic stones and kind of maximize my uh, uh, kind of depth of letting go. It's, it's what some people call a state of non-self, uh, very ego-free, uh, but also one of pure awareness. So it's, uh, it's a bit dicey. And of course, it has that strange paradox, like so many spiritual uh, nuggets of gold that if you grasp it too hard, you can't get it. It's elusive. Just like I opened my book, Proof of Heaven, with my dreams of flying as a child. And I said, the more I embraced the flying, the harder I crashed into the ground. So it's this strange little dance of kind of letting it go. Uh, But there are techniques to do that within meditation. And those are things that Karen and I often describe in our workshops and play shops and uh, all the various ways we present meditation to the world. 
Yeah, I mean, when I when I started meditating originally, it was very difficult because that monkey the monkey voice was just constant, constant, constant. But what I found that worked for me is I allowed I allowed the the monkey voice to just keep talking, and uh-huh. I just let it. I didn't I didn't try to control it. I just let it go. Uh-huh. And then within a few minutes, I now I get it. I'm I'm in probably within a couple minutes it's after years of meditation. But uh-huh. before it would take me 10, 15 minutes, twenty minutes just to get yeah. to a place where you just go and and exactly you're gone not asleep you're gone right and you come back and then i I always love it when i lose track i have no idea how long i've been under right that's always my best like oh my god i've been under two hours like that's yeah i agree that's when when you're really hitting the magic and for me uh, you know i'm using binaural beat audio signals Mm -hmm. to drive it uh and the signal to me that i'm way in deep is when i'm no longer aware of hearing that audio you know, yeah. when I oh. get that deep and I'm just, yeah. I'm, and you're, of course, you're completely outside of space and time. You are really oh. uh, in, in that zone. And it's, it's the same region where, for example, people encounter souls of departed loved ones and go through life reviews. So that's why, in fact, in our workshops, we help people kind of use these tones to get deep into a meditative state. And we use, actually use the NDE scale developed by Dr. Bruce Grayson in 1983, we use that to help people uh, have uh, kind of markers and milestones for the various events that occur in their deep meditation. So in essence, it's a way of, of considering that you're building up an NDE through cultivation of this relationship and exploring consciousness beyond that little ego mind and the linguistic brain. Now, uh, there's something called, the, is it the Glasgow Glasgow Com- Coma Scale? Glasgow Coma Scale. Yeah, yeah, I wanted you to kind of really uh, detail that a little bit for the audience because I wanted, because a lot of people have, I mean, there's a thousand millions and NED stories out there, but yours is really interesting because according to this Coma Scale, you you had complete, you were completely brain dead and it all. Essence. I would not use the term brain dead. Okay, uh, what would, what I, would be I, the term? I don't exactly. think that's proper, but my brain was was terribly impacted to a point where one would not expect any kind of phenomenal experience, dream, right. hallucination, compabulation, all of that. So yeah, I can certainly explain explain that if you'd like. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I, again, I am not the doctor, so not. Yeah, I won't go into huge then. detail. Sure, but, just a little bit, just a little bit. But for example, if people can look at the medical case report on my medical records, which goes into a lot of detail about my Glasgow coma scale, it's a very important part of the assessment, especially when you realize that all eight major lobes of my brain were involved. My brain stem was involved. My spinal cord was involved. I mean, this meningitis uh, was an encephalitis, and it was destroying my central nervous system at all levels. Um, But to get to your question of Glasgow Coma Scale, and again, this is apparent in the case report, and anybody can get to that case report if if you go to evanalexander.com, go to my blog posting for September 2018, in the third paragraph, there, which the whole blog um, you know, discusses that report. And in the beginning of paragraph three, there's a hot link directly to the case report itself. So you can get all the data right there. But they make a big deal of my Glasgow Coma Scale. Um, now, for you or me today, right now, we would score 15, period. Everybody gets that for being a normal functioning human being. Uh, a corpse would get a three. So anything between three and 15 are the valid numbers. Anything nine or below is deep coma. Now, it turns out in the case report, they say that most of that week, my Glasgow coma scale was around six or seven. 
Now, there are times in the nursing notes where you can easily score me with a five. So I got that low uh, through much of the week. Um, it turns out they gave me an 11 for one moment in the emergency room. And that's because I don't remember this at all, but it was witnessed by several people, including my uh, former spouse and my former uh, Episcopal preacher and neighbor and friend who was there, Michael Sullivan. They heard it. And that is after several hours of just moaning and, gro and groaning and flailing and seizing and no meaningful words at all. I said, God help me. And they heard me scream that out. Now, I have no memory of it at all, but for an instant, the very fact that I could utter words uh, in a phrase of pop me up to an 11 on the GCS scale. But I think by and large, you can just consider I was six or seven, as low as five most of that week. And that at a time when um, my neurologic exams really showed uh, damage far beyond just the neocortex. My brainstem was damaged. Uh, so it was, uh, this was a very uh, wicked case of bacterial meningoencephalitis that should have killed me. Uh, and, and absolutely at the end of it, when they estimated I'd gone from 10% to 2% chance survival with no chance of recovery, that's what the medical literature would suggest about this. There are no cases I've found in the literature of a similar meningitis with a complete recovery. They just aren't there. And in fact, when the three doctors submitted the case report to the peer reviewers at the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, they were challenged. How do you explain this? This case is absurd. No one this ill comes back completely. How do you explain it? And what the three doctors said is that it was because of the near-death experience that I was able to have such an unexpected recovery. And uh, they knew of other cases, like Anita Morjani, whose stage four uh, B lymphoma basically disappeared after her near-death experience, or the story of Dr. Mary C. Neal. She had a beautiful NDE after a kayaking accident in Chile in which she had a more than 30-minute warm water drowning. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, any, any doctor out there who's ever handled drowning victims knows 30 plus minutes in warm water, you're toast. You're not coming back. And yet she had a full recovery. So uh, the big lesson to all of us as human beings is that the spiritual realm offers a tremendous amount of capability of healing far beyond the expectations of our materialist models. And this, this is just an extension beyond placebo effect. For example, you know, we've um, honored placebo effect for more than six decades in medicine as the arbiter of a new treatment that we wanted to examine. And that's because doctors recognized uh, in the 1950s that beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes can play a tremendous role in how healthy someone can be when they're diseased. Uh, and so placebo effect is widely acknowledged in medicine, but it's much more than just a sugar pill fixing a headache. If you go to noetic.org, Institute of Noetic Web, uh, Sciences website, put in the search term spontaneous uh, remission, you'll find a book they published in the mid-1990s with more than 3,500 cases of basically miraculous healings from cancer, infections, what have you, uh, healings that went far beyond any medical intervention. And the good news is uh, Helena Wabe, who works at IAN, is now updating that database with 30 more years of data. I cannot wait to see that. But 
In other words, we're just talking here about the capabilities for healing ourselves. Uh, and I would say any kind of physical, mental, and uh, emotional healing is ultimately spiritual in the sense, the spiritual just having two ingredients to it in my book. Uh, one is a sense of connection through mind, you know, that we're all connected. That's why we can pray for others and through the mental realm, we can influence their healing and um, that kind of thing. And also a sense of shared purpose and meaning to our existence, that it's all not just a blind mechanistic wheel of suffering that we're trying to get off of, but that all of this is leading somewhere uh, and that we're in this together. That's, that's the beautiful part of it all. Can you talk a little bit about your life review? Because I've always been fascinated because I've heard this concept repeated again and again. What is what was your life review like? And can you very important to point out, given my amnesia, uh, there was no way I was going to go through an Evan Alexander life review because all of those uh, facts of my life were obscured for me during the journey. Um, Now, it turns out, though, that I had two fantastic visions that I've often talked about um, uh, in presentations and uh, I'm just beginning to kind of work together how to explain them in in, in another uh, book that will cover kind of my progress in understanding all this. But these two visions happened in the core realm, that kind of ultimate destination that I had. Uh, of course, I would bounce back from it, but ultimately I would rise back to that core. That's where so many of the lessons happened. And one of the first vision that I recall was one that I call the flying fish version. And that was this very strong a uh, vision of these fish down in the water zipping along at speed, you know, and that was how I saw us in these uh, material bodies, dumbed down temporarily, not remembering. There's program forgetting, which covers over uh, those memories of past lives and between lives. Uh, so that by age five or six, most children have great difficulty remembering those uh, memories of past and between lives. Um, and And so for me, uh, I saw that the, these flying fish would come up out of the water, and that was like dying, leaving the physical body, getting back into the spiritual realm, where they would reunite with souls of departed loved ones, this other flying fish that were up in the air. Uh, and then they go through life reviews, which were basically mid-course corrections, uh, ways of kind of learning uh, any residual lessons from this life, if our soul was advanced enough to take on those, those lessons and learnings, and then work with our soul group to come up with the challenges to be involved in the next life and then dive back in. So that flying fish version was one, but there was a more powerful version that came with another passage through the core. Uh, This one I refer to as the Indra's net version. Uh, And that was a vision of this incredible tapestry, multi-dimensional tapestry of all these interwoven threads. And I saw the threads as the lives of sentient beings and the web and weave of the fabric was uh, basically like breathing, but it was coming into incarnations, learning and teaching, uh, and then exiting a body, uh, reuniting with souls of departed loved ones, going through life review, reshuffling the mix for the next set of lessons, and then going back in. And that was what I saw woven into this tapestry that went towards this brilliant, uh, glowing, golden uh, future of of what I, I soon came to call kind of a Christ consciousness after Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's uh, writings in the mid-20th century. Uh, he was a scientist, a paleontologist, but also very spiritual. He was a French Jesuit priest, 
And in his book, The Phenomenon of Man, he recognized that evolution was indeed happening, but it was much grander than just some puny little evolution of life forms on Earth, and that all of consciousness throughout the cosmos was in the process of evolving. And that is exactly why I call that that Indra's net version and that brilliant glowing center was kind of where all this is headed. And from the perspective of humans now, I would say we're looking at about a 5,000-year epoch of trying to come to uh, a deeper understanding of, of what the universe has presented to us and our understanding of what it means about our relationship with it. Um, and beyond you know, the next few thousand years, I'm not sure if we can really see where this is all headed. But what it looks like right now is learning this profound lesson of oneness, that we're connected through one mind, and that those visions that people have in life reviews of NDEs of you know uh, witnessing the events not from their own perspective but the emotional perspective of others around them uh, that's the interesting thing about life reviews uh, is they show us that uh, two two major things one is uh, that the boundaries of self are part of a fiction that we live with here but that ultimately we're sharing the dream of the one mind uh, and that I think is a very important way to put it and and we find that out in that life review if you've been busy handing out pain and suffering to other people in the life review you become the you feel it the brunt of it because all that comes back on you that's how life reviews work uh, but they're a lesson that these soul, these deep soul lessons are not, you know, learned just from the perspective of an ego of a of a one sentient being, but that they acknowledge uh, this uh, kind of learning and teaching together. Um, and uh, the other key part of life reviews is uh, people often describe them as you know reliving in detail the events. It's not some vague sepia tinted memory. This is an actual emotionally engaging re visiting those events and again often from the perspective of others who are impacted by thoughts and actions and that's where i think uh, uh the bigger lesson of life reviews and the way i saw them uh as both the flying fish and that uh, ender's net vision uh, was just an extraordinary way to present that kind of timeless nature of seeing our our evolution uh, but in a much richer sense in that deep time uh, sense that it means you don't have to worry about some of the details like what if my loved one reincarnates before I get there? I mean, by definition, since this is really all about the relationships, uh, there's no way that a loved one would not be there at that time. And that's the beauty of kind of seeing how deep time allows for these things to occur completely outside of the flow of time that we're witness to in our kind of consensus reality here on Earth. So in your experience, do you, you think that that souls, I guess, almost travel in in similar circles? Like, you know, if, if I mean, you know, my wife and I who have a deep connection in this life or my kids and I have a deep connection in this life in the next life, the roles might be changed. Exactly. Different lessons, but we might be running in the same circle. And that thing goes with our parents and our close exactly. friends and things like that. So that's kind of the, what you you were seeing from your experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. That um, that the the love is really, you know, that's the trump card. That's what dictates everything else that happens. And I believe that uh, there is a lot to that of kind of soul groups reincarnating. And of course, it points out uh, that our gender, of course, is not part of our soul. We can easily flip flop genders. Our roles as parent and child, our grandparent and grandchild, things like that. Can flip flop in these uh, in these various 
kind of reshufflings of our of our soul journey with our soul group. Um, but I, I think it's uh, it's a very comforting thing to appreciate uh, that that's really the deepest lesson of near death experiences, and of course it dovetails perfectly, for example, into the terminal care and hospice work. For example, there's a beautiful book uh, called Death is But a Dream, came out about three years ago by Dr. Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R. He works in Hospice Buffalo in New York. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it's a beautiful book. He has no interest in the afterlife, but when he describes what is going on with people who are passing from this world on his watch, you end up hearing the very same stories that you often hear from people who have had an NDE, you know, about making amends for their wrongs in this life when they've hurt others. Uh, A huge part of the process there is making amends to those people in whatever way possible. And, and that's really why the, the death experience can be so powerful and, and, and validating and uh, affirming of life is that that is our, our, really our chance to kind of rise up to the occasion and become the souls we came here to be. And that includes admitting the wrongs we have done to others and how, how that never fits in to this vision of the life reviews and how they nudge us towards uh, unconditional love for all of our fellow beings. I mean, the life review is is the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, written into the very fabric of the universe. And the golden rule, I would say, is essential to basically all major religious systems and certainly some ethical, uh, you know, atheist systems of morals and ethics. A golden rule is right there at the heart of it. And yet you see it uh, perfectly demonstrated in life reviews, because if we hurt others, we are hurting ourselves, And that's what we discover in that life review. And that's a lesson that this world really needs to learn now with all of our polarization and friction and false sense of separation that's inherent in the predominant materialist model. You know, that's what gives us that false sense of separation, where it's a quantum informed version of reality and understanding consciousness uh, fully allows for this oneness that we share and we're in this together. Do you believe now, I mean, obviously in, in my lifetime, I've never seen so much discord and discord and, and, and just polarization and the, you know, the world is kind of upside down environmentally. We're going through a pandemic, a once in a generation pandemic, there's so much going on. It seems that there is almost a reshuffling, uh, a shaking of the etch-a-sketch a bit, uh, to yeah. date myself a bit, uh, of, of, of the world. And it's, not, it's something that's not just, oh, a little, you know, this country here or that country there or groups of countries. The whole world is going through this at the exact same time, which is something really that I hadn't seen before in, in my, definitely in my time, but let alone in, the, in recent last 500,000 years, I haven't seen the entire planet kind of really be affected by this. Why do you think from your perspective, um, this is happening? And what do you think that this means for us going forward? Well, I can draw an analogy to work in addiction and alcoholism studies. You know, in medicine, we often encounter people who are suffering from various addictions, and that can be to substances or not. For example, some people are addicted to work, some are addicted to exercise, Some are addicted to love or sex. I mean, there are many different things we can be addicted to that can really wreck our lives. Those are always diseases of the ego. That is where the ego is making demands and the host can't necessarily 
um, you know, satisfy all those demands. In fact, some therapists will do a ritual sacrifice of the ego. Now, I would say in many ways, our modern world is kind of addicted to materialist thought and that false sense of separation to a lot of things that are very toxic. Um, and that is what brings us to, uh, you know, in, in the alcoholism addiction work, you can call a gift of desperation, where somebody hits so low a bottom, you know, things just get so wrecked and bad in their life because of the addiction that they've got to bounce up and use that energy to get better. Uh, and in many ways, our world is currently facing a collective gift of desperation. Uh, I mean, who in the world uh, who, you know, grew up like in my you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, the Cold War, you know, uh, USSR versus uh, uh, the U.S. building bomb shelters in the 60s and 70s, all this madness, insane madness. Who would have thought that in the year 2022, boom, all of a sudden we'd be back in just like, uh, you know, 1939 or something where one big European country is invading another militarily or threatening it. Are you kidding me? We haven't grown up any more than that. And I think that this is part of the issue that, you know, with climate change, I think the, the pan pandemic in many ways was just a wake up call right. to help us realize that the only way we can really uh, kind of survive and thrive with these kind of challenges is to face them together. And the more we kind of take this mindless idiocy and continue telling ourselves the lies that got us into this trouble, our addiction to fossil fuel, all the corporate greed you see with just extraordinary wealth concentrated in the top one or two percent and the bottom 50 percent left wanting. I mean, there are giant problems in any country that has billionaires and starving children. Those two things should never be in the same space. Uh, and, you know, I, why we've gotten so confused about all this, um, I'm not sure. But I will also say that I believe that when there is a major paradigm shift imminent, that in fact, the fundamentalist forces that feel threatened uh, from that paradigm shift recoil in this giant kind of rage. Uh, it's like a cobra, you know, spreading its... Uh, you know, looking as big as it can as it gets its fangs out ready to spray. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. That's the madness of the political polarization, you know, threats of a, a new war out of Russia. Uh, and, and meanwhile, so many of this world are waking up to this re revolution in consciousness that really points to the oneness we all share. And in fact, I'm very optimistic about the future. And it's because I think we are going through an energizing gift of desperation that will help this world truly wake up. NDEs, in many ways, are the tip of the spear. You know, the materialist science that I worshipped before coma, I do not use that term lightly. That materialist science feels very, very threatened. And certainly people who harbor these kinds of uh, wealth accumulating uh, modes of our current society, etc., uh, the corporate greed and all the problems with addiction to fossil fuels and plastic pollution. I mean, all the real horrible, ugly underbelly of homo sapiens kind of raping and pillaging the world. Uh, I think people are waking up to that and they're not really going to allow us to go through another major phase of, uh, of kind of self-destructive, egocentric uh, mindlessness, which is what we've spent the better part of the last few centuries uh, circling the drain. Uh, so I think that all the uh, kind of roughness that we're complaining about in the world 
in many ways is a good sign that we're waking up. We're not going to tolerate this. We're not going to continue to burn fossil fuels like crazy and enrich the uh, fossil fuel industry because it's madness. What it's doing to our planet is obvious to anyone uh, you know, who's witnessing these extreme droughts, fires, the extreme floods, superstorms, rising sea levels. I mean, we are really in a deep trouble already. We've already gone over the cliff, and it's high time we did the right thing and took responsibility for our choices. I, it's a fantastic answer to that question because I agree with you 110. Uh, percent We can't. I think it is madness. It's it's suicidal to continue to go the path that we've been going, and something is shaking us up. Uh, and right. It's hard to. It's always hard. Like I always say, it's hard to read the book when. You're in when your book is to your nose. You need to pull it back a little bit right. to, get, to get perspective. And I think that's what I think that's what the world is doing to us right now. Is is it's hopefully giving us perspective. Now you've mm-hmm. used the term consciousness uh, a lot throughout uh, not only this conversation but throughout your work. What is your definition of consciousness? Well, consciousness is really awareness of existing. You know, Rene Descartes said, "Cogito ergo sum." I think, therefore, I am. I I wish he had clarified that a little better because it kind of confused people. He made it seem like the thinking itself was the existence, but it's the awareness of the thinking that is the existence. And that's where we can make a modern differentiation and we can put our linguistic brain and ego brain, um, ego mind into timeout. Uh, So I would just say consciousness is that awareness of existence. It turns out it's a property of the universe at large that pre-existed the Big Bang. And sentient beings can share in that mental layer of the universe. Uh, uh, my partner, Karen Newell, would be, you know, mental layer implies mind over matter, like placebo effect and spontaneous uh, healing, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. And she would be reminding us that the, the truth is spirit over matter, not mind over matter. And that's where the, the definitions, whether you want to call this idealism with a mental layer of the universe having this top-down causal ordering, or if you want to go beyond that, which I often like to do uh, in a philosophical discussion, say it's not just the mental layer that is that is determining so much of what happens in our lives, but it's really that spiritual layer. That's where we all come together in a sense of, of purpose and meaning. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. There's a, a great book out there called The One Mind by friend and colleague Larry Dossey. Uh, I would uh, point that book out. In fact, um, for your listeners who want to know more about evidence for the afterlife, there's been a recent contest in 2021 from BigelowInstitute.org, and people can go read the 29 winning essays to that contest at BigelowInstitute.org. Uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the question they were to answer what is the best scientific evidence for the survival of consciousness after permanent bodily death? And so at that website, BigelowInstitute.org, you can find 29 winning essays that will absolutely take you to the next level of understanding the reality of this. Now, I mentioned it because the second place paper by Dr. Pim Van Lommel uh, is an excellent paper. It's, it's uh, very scientific and right on target, but at the, towards the very end, He agrees with our position in living in a mindful universe and talks about the one mind and the brain as a filter. And he references the four different sources for that. One source is uh, Larry Dossey's book, The One Mind. 
Another is Stephen Taylor's book, uh, Spiritual Science. Another resource is a paper, scientific paper by, by Bernardo Castrup called Consciousness in the Universe. And then the fourth source that he lists is the book Living in a Mind for Universe that Karen Newell and I wrote. All four of those sources are very powerful scientific arguments for the reality of one mind that we are sharing. And, and looking at the brain as a filter or a transceiver that gives us each a slightly different perspective of the one mind, but that ultimately our consciousness is that one mind. We're sharing the dream of the one mind. That one mind is that infinitely healing God force that so many have encountered in near-death and shared-death experiences in you know, prophets and mystics going back thousands of years have bathed in that ocean of love of that one mind. And so this is really a scientific model that's unfolding uh, called filter theory. And uh, that's what we go into in Living in a Mindful Universe to explain all this. But it, it helps to understand much more uh, of all these kind of experiences and how they can be viewed in a way that makes sense in a modern understanding of the nature of reality. So the filtering idea is, so essentially we all are thinking, we, we all, not thinking, we all have that same consciousness. We all are one giant um, mind, if, to use a better, lack of a better term, mind. But uh -huh. depending on our exist, our experiences, where we're born, our, our race, our, our, our cities, our communities, our religious beliefs, those are all filters that kind of filter out, like filter different perspectives of the whole. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say that's, that's a very good way, way to look at it. Um, and, you know, just a reminder that it's, uh, again, that golden rule being written into the fabric of the universe. That's all we're really saying here is you learn that when you hurt another, you, you might have to go through that in a life review. Uh, and it's all done in this process of course refinement. And what it points out in, in a very strong fashion, is the importance of free will. Because remember that modern materialist science will scoff at you if you claim to have any free will. And that's because they think consciousness is simply the epiphenomenon of, 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 of you know, chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the substance of the brain. And that that's what gives us consciousness. They think all, the, all those atoms and molecules uh, are following the laws of of physics, chemistry, biology. So where in the world would you put free will in that system? And that's where you recognize the importance of really going deep on this. And so we rely on this notion of the primacy of mind, the primacy of consciousness, not only on the hard problem of consciousness, um, which is basically the impossibility of trying to put together the way the brain works and explain conscious phenomenal experience, but also philosophy of mind, the Binding problem, the apparent unity of consciousness within an individual. Why is that so? If it's all these different neuronal populations doing their own thing, where does that unity come from? And then you've got all the evidence for non-local consciousness out of uh, parapsychology, things like telepathy, precognition, pre-sentiment, out-of-body experiences, um, near-death experiences, shared death. Uh, past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation, after death communication, deathbed vision, all these things. We go into great detail about how each and every one of them contribute to this notion of the one mind. And then ultimately, you've got quantum physics itself banging on the door. That is what 
tells the scientific community that you can forget about a deterministic Newtonian universe, which is what they're thinking with those chemical reactions and electron fluxes. I mean, John Wheeler, the renowned head of physics at Princeton, came up with a participatory anthropic principle. What he was pointing out was the importance of mind, mind not derivative from matter, to explain all this. Uh, and, and so all of these arguments and living in a mindful universe, we bring them all together to make the case for this one mind that we're all sharing and the brain serving as a filter. And it's very important for this world at large, especially with our dominant kind of materialist thinking and its errors of pretending that none of us have free will, uh, that consciousness is a complete illusion, uh, that ignores, I think, human history and destiny that is not simply, uh, I think when you look back on it, you can't just assume this was the result of a lot of random chemical reactions and electron fluxes in brains that led to uh, this emergent reality. There's something much richer and deeper going on that has to do with the primacy of consciousness. And that's what the quantum uh, physics uh, uh, people were telling us, uh, you know, by huge numbers in the early history of the field of quantum physics. And the work has only gone to paint us into the corner where you really have to admit uh, that objective idealism, that mental layer of the universe, top-down causality, all of that is real. And there are some quantum physicists who may still be stuck in the weeds. You know, they think, no, 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 it's, it's the subatomic particles following all the rules and laws of physics and chemistry, biology. That's what gives us the events of our world. Well, no, that's not true. There's a top-down causal principle. And as sentient beings, we have access to that mental layer of the universe. So the mental layer is really just a layer of information in integration and assimilation. And that's what we have access to. And so in the modern era, all of this discussion can be very fruitful, uh, especially if you, for example, follow Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation of quantum mechanics of the measurement paradox, which is the sticking point where everybody is in disagreement, uh, and then support Bernardo Castrop's relational interpretation with, uh, I'm sorry, Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation with the metaphysics of Bernardo Castrop, who is one of the endorsers of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And of course, I've also endorsed a lot of his work, specifically uh, the idea of the world, his book, a very excellent uh, argument uh, for the mental nature of reality and basically objective idealism as the rule by which this whole universe uh, works. Now, I wanted to just touch on something in regards to free will, because that's always a sticking point with a lot of people like, oh, if we have these past lives and we have to come back in and out and reincarnate, you know, everything's pre-written for us, like we don't have anything to do. So I, my, my always understanding of free will is like, look, tomorrow I can decide to go be an astronaut or even better yet, I'm going to go be an NBA player. Now, that might be something I can choose to go try to do chances of me doing that because I'm not really built for that. I wasn't set up for that. The whole, my whole life path hasn't been aimed at that it would be a difficult journey. And that might be a path that I have to learn. And I believe me, I've have gone through some of those journeys in my life uh, of dreams that are like, yeah, maybe I want to be an NFL player. Not, you weren't built for that. That's not your path. Um, but you have the choice to kind of go in and out. But I always found it, at least in my life, when you start walking the path that was kind of written for you, things flow a lot easier. Things move a lot right. easier. There's less obstacles. When you start getting a lot of obstacles in front of you, that's generally a sign that something is off. 
uh, a little bit here or there. And you have to figure out other ways to go about it. If the right. if the want and the the want and the burning the need to go down that path is there. What's your opinion right. on that? Well, I think you bring up some uh, wonderful points, uh, but this whole idea of predeterminism uh, versus a free will, uh, I, I believe that in many ways our, our soul groups kind of lay out some potential milestones for how we will work together, who will come in as the parent, the child, playing this role, that role, you know, uh, and, and it can involve a lot of things, especially what we view from this world as hardships and difficulties, challenges, illness, injury. And I think that it's how we deal with those challenges that really defines our free will and our soul growth. Uh, the more we can recover that love of the universe for self. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The more we can share that love by manifesting it for others and facing up to the hardships and difficulties in life uh, with a proper attitude of growth and learning and, and gratitude and forgiveness when necessary, I think that is what really points out to me the kind of healing that can come from acknowledging our true free will, uh, but that ultimately it involves uh, taking these lessons of life, as you've said, often we perceive certain hurdles that might be in our way to get to certain points. Uh, and so we're, we're there kind of navigating that pathway and trying to kind of fulfill our, our wants and desires and uh, what we see as our needs and our relationships, uh, but do it um, you know, in, in a proper fashion that allows us to grow as souls. And I would say, from my point of view, uh, I think that there might be some predeterminism to some of those challenges and hardships we face. For example, my being uh, given up for adoption when I was 11 days old. I think that was part of my soul agreement coming in because I, my higher soul, not my ego self. You know, if we look at this, these questions and statements from our ego mind, sometimes we go, what are you talking about? Crazy. Why would I choose to face that hardship or difficulty or illness or injury in this life? No way. Well, their ego wouldn't, but their higher soul could easily see some value uh, and potential for growth of the whole group. It's never about an individual soul. It's always about the relationships and the group at large. I mean, that mirrors a general principle coming to the fore in modern physics, that it's not about the electrons and the photons and the quarks and the particles, but it's about excitations in the field. So it's about the relationships, and that's exactly uh, what we're talking about here. It's all about the relationships, and that's why it's so important to understand the power of love to bring healing and wholeness to our existence. And, uh, you know, so many of us live our lives not necessarily acknowledging that fact. And yet uh, in the NDE community, and when you study modern examples of, of uh, consciousness, especially things like after-death communications, deathbed visions, uh, you start to realize uh, that, that we can depend on that spiritual realm to help guide us and nudge us in a proper direction for soul growth. Uh, as I said in the book, Proof of Heaven, you know, my guardian angel told me you're deeply loved and cherished uh, forever. You have nothing to fear you're cared for. But I also said you can do no wrong. And the way I put it in proof of heaven, that was misinterpreted. Uh, and I wish I'd explained it much more fully because in against the ambience of that beautiful, loving, uh, healing power of that God love of that realm, you know, any transgressions of hurting others in a life review seem especially uh, abhorrent. 
so you've got to realize that 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 ambience, um, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter even if you're dealing with, say, um, you know, prisoners in a maximum security prison filled with murderers and rapists serving as hospice workers for fellow prisoners. What they describe are similar journeys of, of people coming to the end of their life and having regrets about hurting others and of, of not manifesting that love, uh, often uh, coming to some kind of realization maybe about a childhood trauma where they realize that their own parent had faced similar hardships and that helps them to explain why that parent behaved like that. And then they understand more deeply why they behave like that, even though they've now come at their end of their life to realize it's wrong and, and realize that in all these settings of the ambience of that love, the healing power of love is right at the front of it all. It's not like people are worried about, oh, they encounter what looks like eternal hell and damnation or something like that. That's not what happens. What happens is maybe an unpleasant life review because you handed out pain and suffering to others. But it's always these lessons are very positive and affirming uh, about the reality of that realm, about its importance to us as sentient beings uh, living these lives, and, and really just a much grander sense of what this existence is all about. Now, Doctor, where can people um, find out more about you and your and where to get the book? Well, go to Eben, that's E-B as in Baker, E-N-Alexander.com. Uh, I have a reading list there with a lot of uh, more than 100 books and, and kind of papers, and they're organized by category. I've prioritized them by my favorites, et cetera. Some of the scientific papers you can get to by a hot link, so it goes to the real paper right then and there. So that reading list is a, an excellent resource. My blog postings are there. Uh, a lot of other things are there that people can explore. FAQ page uh, answers a lot of the common questions people ask about my experience. So ebonalexander.com is a great place. Also encourage anyone interested in the meditation, go to sacredacoustics.com. Full disclosure, that's the website of my partner and co-author of that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen Newell. She's the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics, which is a form of binaural beat brainwave entrainment. That's what I've used, uh, you know, an hour to a day for the last 10 plus years to re-explore my journey. I'm one of their biggest fans by far, although I have no financial ties to uh, sacred acoustics at all, but I'm a giant fan. Um, also, I would encourage people to go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. And that website is something uh, Karen and I started back at the beginning of the pandemic. It was Karen's brilliant idea. We have uh, in there a whole series of, of interviews we did with some of the renowned uh, thought leaders around the globe in consciousness studies and also some other experiencers. Uh, it's an extraordinary list of interviews. We did them every two weeks uh, for about 18 months during the early pandemic. So there are plenty of interviews there. Just go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, much of that program is completely free. Uh, some aspects of it, like a, a, a course for mental health practitioners, does have a, a, a charge attached to it. Uh, but a lot of the work there is absolutely free and available to the public. Those interviews are worth their weight in gold or platinum. I'm not sure which. Uh, but uh, we invite people to go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, to join us, and we'll be uh, probably revisiting those uh, interviews and starting a whole uh, series of new ones in the next few months. But right now, there's a tremendous uh, backlog of very important interviews there that'll help people get fully up to speed with all of this.
Uh, Evan, thank you again so much for being on the show and sharing your journey with uh, not only my audience, but with the world, with your work and your book. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you and continued, uh, continued success in your work. Well, Alex, thanks so much for getting this out to the world. It's been a joy talking with you and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks so much. I truly want to thank Dr. Evan Alexander for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us. I would definitely suggest you pick up his first book, Proof of Heaven, but his new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is fantastic as well. You can get those links and everything else we spoke about in the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 032. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.